Well, if you have a Bible, let's turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2 as we uh, have begun this new series on turnaround churches. And one of the reasons why we have done this is because our, our church uh, leadership team has gone through what was called a strat ops. And one of the part of the strat ops is to look at our church over the last 20 years and we ask questions like what's right, what's wrong, what's confusing, what's missing, and uh, begin to build out graphs and, and all these things. And and start tackling these issues, and we came up with these uh, six strategic uh, initiatives to address the issues that we felt like we needed to address. And so I thought it would be a good idea for us as a church to go through this, because this is exactly what Jesus did with the churches in Revelation. He uh, addressed the churches who are now about 40 years old after Christ has ascended back into heaven, and he's asking those questions, what's right, what's wrong, what's confusing, what's missing? in order to not tear down the church, but he wanted to build the church up. He just wanted to say, you know what, there, there are a few blind spots that you have developed that you don't see, and I, I want to point these out to you. And so Jesus didn't just like run in there and say, this is what you're doing wrong, and you gotta, you gotta. no, he says, man, these are the good things you're doing. Uh, these are some things that you, know, you need to take care of. Uh, this is a little bit confusing. This is missing, so you need to add that into it in order to get the outcome uh, that I desire for you as a body of believers. Now, there are only two churches to which Jesus had nothing wrong uh, with those churches, and that was the church at Smyrna we saw last week, and then the church at Philadelphia, which we'll see in a, in a few weeks. So um, in the very first church, the church at Ephesus, you'll recall that they were doing a lot of things right because they were a beehive of activity. They were doing a lot of ministry. The problem is they forgot Jesus in the midst of their ministry which says to us that you can be engaged in a lot of ministry throughout the course of your lifetime and not even really know the Savior whom you're ministering in his name. Uh, and this happens often in many ways. Uh, for example, yesterday I had to go to the bank uh, in order to deal with an online issue that I had. And so I'm sitting here talking to this young man, and um, we're talking about my problem, and then we just kind of got in casual conversation, and he asked me what I did, and I said, you know, I'm a pastor at First Baptist in Groveport, and so he started sharing with me, oh, you know, my, my dad's a pastor, my, my grandfather was a pastor, and he said, yeah, I, I grew up in a Baptist church, and I know all about going to Sunday morning, Sunday night, you know, back in the day of training union, and Wednesday night, and I, you know, I know all the Bible stories, and, and of course, when I, I hear this story beginning to unfold, I'm always waiting for the shoe to drop, the but, and sure enough, it came, but I don't do that anymore, Right? So there's a falling away. So I'm always curious about what the falling away, how it got started, why it got started. So we begin engaging in a conversation. So here's a young man who grew up in church, who grew up in a Christian home, but he doesn't really know the Jesus that he was seeking to, you know, what he felt like was forced to follow, you know, his entire child life. And now that he's a grown up and can make decisions on his own, he chose to walk away from that Jesus that he felt like he was forced to be a part of. So this is kind of what the, the church at, at Ephesus and the, Jesus calls them back to their first love relationship. And so this church left their first love, but when you came to the church of Smyrna, they were willing to lay down their love by laying down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And they were, man, they were just going at it because they knew that the world's answer Humanity's answer to their problems is not the government, it's not more money, it's not better economics. The world's answer is Jesus, 
Because until God changes the human heart, nothing really changes. Right? So you go all the way back to the beginning, and when the fall took place, and from that point on, humanity's heart has always been bent towards evil. And sometimes evil rises up to the extent that it, it just unfolds itself in a very um, in-your-face kind of way, which is what happened in El Paso at the Walmart where 20 people, their lives are ended, 26 wounded, because somebody decided out of fear and hate, uh, they were going to rise up and they were going to act on that. Who do you think is behind all of that? Remember, our, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It is Satan, the evil one, who's working behind the scenes, in the heart and the mind of this young man that would drive him to do such an act. We better be aware that Satan is on the loose on this earth. He's not backed up. He's not backing down. He's not going to shut up. He's not going to become shy. He is still very much engaged in the lives of humanity and the world in which we live. But God has equipped us. He has equipped us with his Holy Spirit. And the spirit that is within us is far more powerful than the evil that is roaming the world if we will allow God to display his power through us, through the giftings of the Spirit that God has, has woven into the body of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That is our message, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power to save, heal, and to deliver. And it is a very needed message in our day and time. Now we come to the church at Pergamum, and Pergamum means married. That's what the, the name literally means. And this church is reminded that they are the bride of Christ, the bride of Christ, and they are to remain pure and separated from the world in which they find themselves in because the culture that they are immersed in is a very uh, demonic culture, to say the least. A lot of um, cult worship going on. And so Romans 12.2 says that we are to no longer conform ourselves to this world, but we as the body, the bride of Christ, are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, and I'll just read these for you. It, it says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust, the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does not come from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man or woman who does the will of God lives forever. Right? So the word world is not referring to our physical world. It is not referring um, to humanity. It is referring to the world's systems, its values, its morals, its worldview that are contrary and contradictory to God's morals and values and worldview. That's what John is referring to. This is what the church of Pergamum was fighting against, is that the fear was that they would become more like the world rather than being distinct from the world, the very world they were called to reach. You never reach the world by becoming like the world. You reach the world by becoming the distinct body and bride of Christ and allowing the power of God to be displayed through the body of Christ so that the world rises up and takes notice. There is a God that you are serving, that you are following. There is a Savior who has the power to save, right? has the power to change hearts and lives and to make our, our to transform us into something that we were not prior to that. Now, remember that Satan is referred to as the prince of this world in Scripture. 
this, the, the world is Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on earth. And the world is not a natural habitat for we as believers. This is not our home. We are citizens of heaven. We are here on assignment as representatives of the kingdom of God. The church is not the kingdom of God. We are only a representative of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is way bigger than the church because it is the power and the authority of God over all things. We are just representatives. We are the ambassadors who represent the kingdom of heaven here on earth. A kingdom here on earth that has its own prince and he is the power of darkness. And the dangerous deception that faced this church was worldliness. Worldliness is simply this, and here's how I kind of define it. It's allowing your desires to control you instead of the Spirit of God. It's allowing your desires to control you instead of the Spirit of God. So Paul contrasted that in the book of Ephesians. Remember, he says, here's what life looks like when you're being controlled by your own desires called the flesh, and here's what life looks like when you're being controlled and led by the Holy Spirit. They are two distinct, different-looking things. And so the pull of the church was that in order to get along, uh, they would just kind of like be like the world around them. And God was warning them that this is not what I've called you to. You are the bride of Christ. You are to be pure. You are to be holy. You have been set aside. You are separated. And so you are, you are living in a temporary instead, you know, in they, they were living in light of the t- what's temporary instead of what is eternal. So here's how I put it on your outline and how I describe this. Here was the danger facing this church. The danger was the deception of idolatry. So Jesus is going to challenge this church to break the hold of idolatry from their heart. Idolatry is the root of all sin. Think of it like a tree, and there's a tree trunk and the trunk is idolatry, the branches and the leaves simply represent everything that we're going to utilize uh, in order to kind of replace God. Here's how it works. From the very inception of humanity being placed on planet Earth, what was Satan's desire? To be worshipped, to be honored, to be exalted, He wanted his throne above God's throne, which is what got him kicked out of heaven to begin with, right? And so, ever since then, Satan has always tempted humanity to replace God with something else. You've got this desire, God says, I want to fill that desire, but I'm going to fill it in according to my values, my morals, my will. But the flesh says, oh, no, 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 God, Um, I think I'll do it my way and according to my values and... uh, my morals, and what it is I desire. Because remember, when you came into the world, whose kingdom were you a part of? You were a king, part of the kingdom of, of Satan. He was the prince of the power over your life. right? Ephesians chapter 2, just read the first three verses. says that the world, is, whether they realize it or not, has been infiltrated with the morals and the values and the, and the will of the evil one Uh, more than we realize. And so your flesh has this um, head start. Your flesh is not your body. Your body itself is not evil. It is the thought patterns that are built upon morals and values, uh, uh, worldview of the, the evil one, right? So when you were saved, you were transferred into the kingdom of God's son. 
So this kingdom has a new king. Who's the king? Jesus is the king, right? And so Jesus says, my kingdom operates on a different set of values, morals, and worldview. And so now we are to align ourselves with those values, morals, and worldview. But the pull of our heart, the natural default of our heart, is to drag back over into our previous morals, values, and worldview that we established very early on in life. You know, by the age of seven, a child's moral compass has been set. So the Catholic Church used to say, because it was based upon the monks earlier, you know, way back, give us your children for the first eight years of their life, we've got them for life. Because they know that the patterns and and the values and, and all of that is intrinsically imprinted upon the subconscious of your mind. They're the programs that have been programmed into your subconscious that you will automatically adhere to when push comes to shove. And so that's very early on in life. And so here we are, we're new believers. This church, there's believers, you know, in Pergamum. And so let's just, let me give you a little background of this city so that you understand what they're up against and what we are up against. By the time that John penned these words, Pergamum had been Asia's capital for about 250 years. And much of Pergamum was built upon a large canonical hill And it had a huge amphitheater that cascaded down that hill that would seat over 10,000 people. Phenomenal, phenomenal looking place. And um, Pergamon, though, was an important center of worship for four main deities of the Greco-Roman world. And they were Athena, Ascopolis, Dionysus, and Zeus. All their temples were located there. And Zeus, for example... If you were to see a picture of the Temple of Zeus, and you can pull this up online, it looks like a giant throne, which is why Jesus is going to make mention of the throne of Satan, because Zeus was the main god. He was the main guy that you were to bow down to, pay homage to, and, and to worship. This is the place they went, man. They, he, he was it. And so listen to what Jesus says to the church. The angel, Greg, of the church of Pergamon, right? Thought I'd throw that in there. These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Immediately, the readers would think about the temple to Zeus, because that's what it looked like, a giant throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there. He's not saying that all the church is this way. He's just saying there are people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food, sacrificed to idols, and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. We've, referred, we've ran into them back with the church at uh, Ephesus. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. And so um, here's this, the, these temples to these gods 
Um, just to give you a little bit of uh, setting, um, Dionysus, uh, that temple was so vile about what went, in, what went on inside of it that when Rome overcame uh, Pergamum at, at one point, and they, they literally destroyed that temple because they said the immorality that is happening inside that temple is so vile, we won't even stand for it. Now, for Rome, who was completely vile, to say that, it had to be really bad. I mean, really bad. And so these are the things that are going on. This is where God has planted a church in the middle of this city. And so they were known for several things. For example, Ascopolis was the temple dedicated to the God of healing. And so if you went to that temple and you wanted healing, uh, they would give you a narcotic to drink, and it would kind of like, you know, put you in a stupor. You would lay on the floor where non-poisonous snakes were allowed to you know, freely roam. Um, I would Okay, that'd been me. There'd been a new back door somewhere. But anyways, the deal was that when you were laying on the floor is that with, if one of the snakes rubbed up against you, it was a sign that the God was bringing healing to your body. And so this was, this was huge because people traveled from everywhere to come to receive healing through this, this God uh, and in this temple setting. And Pergamum was also known as a great intellectual center because they had a massive library of over 200,000 copies. You say, well, that's not very many. Yeah, it is. When you think about it, every single book was written by hand, copied by hand on papyrus, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, a paper. And so a part of Ascopolis and the medical center together, the symbol was that of a snake, you know, wrapping a, around a, a, a pole, much of like the same medical symbol that is used today comes right out of the days of Pergamon. And so the government officials in this city, uh, again, they used Zeus to manipulate the God, this Greek God, to manipulate policy and power over the people. And so what Jesus says is that we know that Zeus is a false god. We know that he is an idol. And, and many of you have stood firm in the faith. And you think, well, we don't have idols in our culture. <laughs> Please don't be that foolish. We do. We, we, we don't have temples in our city that are dedicated to idols. Uh, we may not have statues that we bring into our homes and we bow down before. Here's how I define an idol, and this is on your outline. Um, idolatry is disregarding what God has clearly revealed in, his, in, revealed in order to obtain something that I strongly desire. In other words, I know God said it, but I want it, and I want it now, and I'm going to have it. And the reason why God said this is bad for you, because it's bad for you. The reason why God may have said this is good for you, because it's good for you, Right? And so, because I want the desires of my heart, you want the desires of your heart, sometimes those desires that are, watch this, those desires bump up against God's values, his morals, his worldview, and so now I have a decision to make. Am I going to push through those in order to get what I want, or am I going to listen to the Spirit of God and say, well, you know what, I may need to back off and reconsider this because I can assure you, you have an enemy on the outside who's taunting you to do what? 
He wants to drag your heart away from the Lord. That's what he wanted for Adam and Eve. He wanted to drag their heart away from the world, from, from the Lord. That's what he's always wanted for humanity, to drag your heart away from the Lord so that he becomes the power source in your life. He becomes the one who gives you direction and guidance in your life. Even though we would not acknowledge that, that's exactly what is happening. That's what temptation is all about, right? To, to set aside God's desires and what God has given to us in his word because I have a stronger desire than what I believe God has here, you know, like this, okay, Greg, this isn't good for you. You really don't want to go down that pathway, but God, you know, I'm in love. I really do want to go down that pathway. No, you know, you really don't know. You don't understand, Lord. I'm so in love. I really want to get down. And so you do, right? So that desire becomes the idol of your life. You're looking to it to bring you what you think God's withholding from you. Some sense of value or some sense of satisfaction or whatever it is that it is promising you, I can assure you that once you receive it, it will be very short-lived. John Calvin, who was a reformer about 400 years ago, once said that our hearts are idol-making factories, and he's right. We are constantly manufacturing other gods in our hearts, and we are giving allegiance to these gods other than to the real Heavenly Father who loves us and who has died for us. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, look, look I'm like a two-edged sword here. What is it referring to? It's referring to the Word of God. Right? So Ephesians 6 says that the Word of God is, you know, it, it's, it's like a sword, and Ephesians uh, or Hebrews 4.12 says this sword is like a double-edged sword. It cuts to, to the bone, the marrow. In other words, it confronts us. What Jesus is saying to this church, listen, the words that I speak, the words that I share, the words that you have that I've given you, there is no authority above those words. Those words were handed to you for your benefit, for your blessing, so that if you'll follow those words, if you adhere to those words, then life will go better for you. We call those words the Bible, right? The Word of God. And so God has given us His Word um, because it judges the attitude of our hearts. It, it, it helps us to understand that although we live in a relativistic society, that means, you know, people say, well, what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you, it's true for you. It really doesn't matter. Just whatever you, you know, you feel good and whatever makes you feel good and whatever. And so that's what we do. We live on a quest for happiness. And, and Jesus is, is invited to come along as long as he doesn't infringe upon my happiness. So the minute a word from Christ confronts what we're doing and says, no, this is wrong, this is sin, this is not going to lead to happiness. This, is, this has a, a very bad ending. And so I have a decision to make. Either I'm going to listen to the words of Christ or I'm going to disregard the words and go with my own heart and my own desires. Does this make sense? So God has given us the Bible, the entire rima of God, the word of God. And the reason why God has given us these commands is that they're not commands that squelch our fun. They are commands that are really... It's God speaking in love, man. I want the best for you. I want you to get the most out of life with the least amount of wear and tear. And if you'll, if you'll follow the owner's operating manual, you, you, that's what you will experience. But if you choose to disregard it, then things are going to happen 
that are outside of your control. And um, there are moments that, you know, what we're doing contradicts the word of God with our lifestyle. And so people come along and say, well, you know, the Bible's just filled with contradictions in reality. It most likely is contradicting us, right? And so the authority of God's word allows me to say this. Uh, the Bible is not a book filled with cruel commandments. It is a book filled with sweet solutions. Do you know the Bible addresses every area and aspect of your life and mine? I don't care if it's about relationships, parenting, finances, you name it, God has a word for it. And he says, these are my kingdom values. These are my kingdom morals. This is my kingdom worldview. They are sweet solutions to your life. And as a church and as a follower of Christ, you would do well to stand on the word of God. And so you recognize the fact that it's not a personality that grows a church. It's the presence of God that grows a church. Now, hear me. Sin always separates. Choose to sin, you choose to suffer. Always. The consequences of suffering may not come immediately. They may be delayed for a while. But that just gives you a false sense of security that what you're doing is okay. That God's a-okay with it. Attaboy, Greg. Keep on going. I've, I've fallen for that one on more than one occasion. And so we don't worship the Bible itself. We worship the God of the Bible. I believe that what God tells me in his word is truth, right? Jesus says, it is truth. There is no greater authority than what I have said to you. And if we're going to leave a fat dent on this planet for the glory of God, then we have to be men and women who are willing to hold to the absolute authority of God's word because that authority is being challenged every single day. And if I just choose to blend into the world and thus disregarding the authority of God's word over my life, and I just take on that form of idolatry in my heart, now I just become like the world, and when I become like the world, I no longer have the power of God flowing through me in order to impact the world. I just become like everybody else. No difference between my life and anyone else's. It has been said over and over and over again by churches, Christians, secular people, that there's very little difference between the life of a believer and the life of an unbeliever, other than the fact the believer claims to be forgiven by Jesus. That should not be. And that's what this church was up against. And so um, we recognize, he mentions a man named Antipas, and Antipas obviously was a man who was unwilling to bow knee before Zeus and proclaim him as God. In fact, History says that at this temple, um, there was a big, huge bull that was kind of a, a, a statue of the god of Zeus, and it was at this place that Antipas was put to death because of his refusal to bow knee to, to this god of Zeus. And so Jesus says, it is the throne of Satan. Do you understand that Satan, from the very beginning, he has a place from which he's operating? Do you know that he has a throne in this world today? You say, well, where is that throne? I have no idea. But I can assure you he has a throne that he's operating from, a place that is a center of his activity, 
And then all of his demonic beings are out there doing his bidding for him, just as God sits upon his throne and has angelic beings who are also out there as messengers doing God's bidding. And so when you read Scripture, you see that sometimes God pulls back the veil, the curtain, and allows us to see the cosmic war that is going on between the demonic world and God's angelic world, and that this is real, and it is being played out upon planet Earth, and we are a part of it. And so idolatry is known as disobedience to the will of God. It is elevating my desire above God's will. And so what God says to us, and really what he challenges us with, where are the places of idolatry in your heart? You'll say, well, I don't know. How do do I know that? How do I know if something has become idolatrous to me? That it's become more important to me than God himself. That, you know, let's say I have a desire in my heart and God says, great, Greg, um, here's, how, here's how you can live that desire out. This is the best way to live it out. But then Satan comes along and he tempts me, right? He's on the other side and says, well, you know, Greg, that's, that's a pretty good option. Let me give you an alternative option. I think this would be better for you, right? And so what's the natural bent of my heart? My natural bent of the heart is to go with the flesh, not with the spirit, until you mature in your Christian life and your Christian walk over the years. And then, you know, now the bent of your heart is leaning more towards the spirit and what he says rather than what the flesh is telling you. But we all battle with this every single day of our lives. And so some questions you may ask yourself, if you don't know, well, what, where's my heart become idolatrous? Well, when you have free time and free thoughts flowing through your mind, what do they automatically drift towards? Where do, you, where do your, your daydreams go? There's a good chance you can, you can chase those daydreams to an idol. Jesus says where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. How do you spend your discretionary money? If you track that, it's a good chance it tells you where your heart is. Emotional life, right? When, when, when things cause you to fall into despair and fear, that brings this, you know, maybe it's, it brings some kind of explosive anger in your life. I don't know what it is for you, but there's a good chance that your fear, your anxiety is rooted in, your fear is rooted in the idol of your heart. A very good chance. And so we have a tendency to do is that we, we deal with the presenting problem, and we'll talk about anger and fear in, in a minute, but think of it like this. It's kind of like a funnel, right? So you have fear, anxiety, anger at the top of the funnel, and this funnel goes down, and it comes to the root source, and that root source will be your tree trunk of idolatry. Idolatry has always been the nemesis of humanity. When God gave the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, what's the very first commandment he dealt with? Idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me. Because God knew that this is the root cause of all sin. You violate this, you're going to violate the rest of them. And that is, that is absolutely true. And so if I'm coveting in my heart for something, and I know God's saying no, but I want it. right? So I did this as a teenager. 
I made a few, uh, how shall we say, foolish financial decisions, right? And so it's like, God, you know, I'm like, God, you know, I really want this. God said, no, 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 God, I really want this. I'll bypass you, Lord. Do you know you can charge your way into anything that you desire? Doesn't mean that that's what God wanted for you at that moment in time. And so I made some huge, you know, financial blunders and, and bad decisions as well as, as other kinds of decisions. And so uh, maybe for some of you, it's the idolatry of control. You've got to be in control of everything. You want to control situations and people. You want to move things according to your agenda and how you want them to go. And we need to be very aware of, uh, of idols that we fight with in this area, right? So sometimes huge um, fights erupt among family members, extended family, because somebody's wanting to control everything. I heard this statement, Marl and I were at a party, and um, there were some family members there, and somebody, an extended family had just died, and those are the very first words that come out of their mouth was, well, you know, that side of the family, they're just so controlling, they want to have control over everything. And so out of idolatry, we self-medicate. We cope. We have coping mechanisms. And you can numb your heart and you can make you feel, yourself feel better for a season, but eventually um, that's not going to work anymore. So here's what happened to this church. Here's what happens to us. Number one is, and this is on your, your outline, um, so the reality of idolatry is you begin to compromise your convictions. You begin to compromise your convictions. And the example that he sets here is a man named Balaam that you find back in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Recall that Balaam was a prophet of God, and uh, so Israel had been pushing back her enemies. And so Balak, who was the king over the Moabites, uh, realized that Israel, man, they had just pushed back Egypt. And man, like Egypt was a, a major force. And so the king of the Moabites, Balak, he thought, well, we're next. Now we got to do something about this. So he hired a prophet of God to, to, to um, curse Israel. Right, like speak a curse over them so they couldn't defeat the Moabites. So um, Balak sends a messenger to Balaam, says, hey, I want you to come and I want you to curse Israel. And of course, Balaam, prophet of God, he, he consults God. God says, no, you ain't doing that. And so to make a long story short, he consults God three times. God says no every time until the last time. And so um, Balaam God says, okay, if that's what you're going to do. And so Balaam leaves and heads to the king of Balak, and watch this very closely. The Bible says that God became angry with him. Well, if God was going to get angry with him, why did he say, all right, do it? So Balaam kept telling Balak, God's not going to let me curse Israel. God's not going to let me curse Israel. But if you can't curse them, you can get them to compromise. So here's what you do. You don't come at them with your armies. Just send your women into their camp and start intermarrying with them and introducing their gods to them. And before long, they'll start following your gods. Your gods will become their gods. It was a beautiful plan 
and it worked wonderfully. And Israel began to compromise, bowing knee to other gods. And so why would God have allowed Balaam to do that, at least even give the the word of compromise, and then get angry with him? Because here's why. If you keep bugging God about something, and bugging him, and bugging him, and bugging him, and bugging him, finally, he'll just go, okay, this isn't what's best for you. Go ahead and do it. Go for it. It's what Paul called in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God. When Paul says, and the wrath, we think the wrath of God in terms of lightning bolts coming from heaven. You know, if I do something wrong, God's going to zap me from heaven, you know, and lightning bolt. No, 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 no. Here's what Paul said. The wrath of God is God just gave them over to their own hearts. And that's what he did with, with Balaam. All right, you want to do it? Go for it. it it's not going to work out well for you. I, I'm, I'm letting you do it. And so the same thing is what God will do to us. If you are hell-bent on disregarding God and just throwing aside his morals, his values, his worldview, his kingdom principles, if you are, God will eventually give you over to that, but don't come whining to him when you suffer the consequences of your actions. But we do, right? Then we come whining to God and say, oh, God, you don't love me. You don't care about me. You you let this happen to me. You've so let me down, and on and on and we go. Not because God wanted you to go down that pathway. You were just, that's idolatry. Idolatry is so rooted itself in my heart, I'm going to do it regardless of what God says. And somebody says, well, you know, um, so it, it really does matter then what you look at, what you see, what you listen to, what you put your mind, you know, you fill your mind with because it always affects your life in the long run. And so... Um, I put it this way, what if your theology leads to your biography? In other words, what you believe will eventually show up in your story. Because you're going to follow what you believe eventually. It's going to show up in your story. And so sometimes it, it does matter what you put in your mind and what you, what, what you fill it with. Because remember, your mind is the control center of your life. And if Satan is coming at you, fighting against you with idolatry in your heart, and you're filling your mind with the wrong things, and you're looking at the wrong things and seeing the wrong things, then your heart just becomes more and more bent towards that which he is tempting you with. People say, well, that's so judgmental. Let me ask you a question. How many of you just would allow any old person come and babysit your kids? Hey, I say one would volunteer, right? You know, or how many of you would just let any old person, it doesn't matter who they are, uh, handle your retirement account? Not going to do that, right? You're so judgmental. See, if, if, I, if I believe that God has the best for me and wants the best and desires the best, then would I want, not want to align my heart with his plan and purpose and will for my life as spelled out in Scripture that my values and his values come in alignment, my morals, his morals come in alignment, my worldview, his worldview comes in alignment so that I can be the most effective witness for Jesus Christ as I can possibly be? How can I be effective as a witness for Christ if my lifestyle is contradicting my message? 
And it's not an issue of being judgmental. It's not an issue of God not loving you. It's not an issue of God just squelching your fun. That's not the issue at all. God wants you to experience the best in life that you can possibly experience. He loves you. And then he gives the next issue is if you begin to see corruption in your life, right? So he goes back to that doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Remember what the Nicolaitans? Not a nickel in it, offering play, named after a deacon named Nicholas, who um, became an apostate. He just kind of backed away from the faith, and he went the opposite direction. And so he went around teaching that, listen, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you live. Because we're all under grace, we're under the grace of Jesus, we're in the new covenant, so therefore it doesn't matter how you live what you do, it's all good in the end because, so do whatever you want, live however you want, because in the end you're going to get your little space in heaven after all. I hear people say all the time, well, you know, pastor, I I really don't care, as long as I get my, my little room in heaven, that's all I'm looking for. And I tell you, that's not all God's looking for. God didn't create you so that you could use up your life and then give him the leftovers at the end of it. How would you like if you went to McDonald's or Wendy's or wherever you may go uh, to obtain that poisonous food uh, to ingest in your body that you try to pray over for God to bless, but he can't bless it because it's unblessable? I'm just kidding. And you, you get, you, so you, you go through the drive-thru, you get to a place, you got a little picnic table at the park, you sit down, you open up, the sandwich is half eaten, the fries are half eaten, somebody's drank out of your Coke, and I mean, you would be livid, right? If you want to know how God feels about giving him your leftovers, just read the book of Malachi. He spells it out very clearly. This is, this is what the church has faced. So some in the church, man, they're starting to marry themselves to the world, Instead of being separate from the, the world, living as the bride of Christ because God wanted to use them in order to have such a tremendous impact upon those around us. So the, watch this. So the power and the flow of the Holy Spirit could just man, like manifest itself through them. Because remember, sin blocks, sin separates. And as long as I'm just living in a sinful lifestyle and I, I, I just don't really care because this is the desire I want, then, then I, it's like a conduit that has a blockage in it and you're blocking the flow of the Holy Spirit through your life. God wants to bring his power from heaven to earth and he will do so through those who in the body of Christ are allowing themselves to be that conduit. It's not that I don't ever sin. I do sin, but I take care of that sin immediately and I'm I'm trying not to do willful sinful things, right? So when my desires conflict with God's desires, I've got a choice to make. You've got a choice to make. How are we going to choose? Because it's going to However I choose is going to be written in my biography of my life. So here's the natural progression, the downhill slide. I'll just fill in your blanks. Number one, you begin to neglect spiritual matters. You look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, it talks about ignoring. You become kind of disinterested, passive uh, disobedience. You just, you know, just got ignore things, kind of neglecting things. You know, it's just not as it used to be. Yeah, you used to spend time with Jesus every morning. Now, you know, maybe you hit one day a week and, you know, things just aren't as important spiritually anymore. And that evolves down or slides down to you become spiritually insensitive. Let's watch this. If the Spirit of God is, is, is tagging your conscience about something, 
and I just like throw that off, blow by it, but over time, mark my words, over time, his voice just gets fainter and fainter and fainter until what the Bible says, your conscience becomes seared and you don't hear him at all anymore. He's trying to give you warning. He's trying to, give, he's trying to turn you around, get your feet back on the right path, but you just can't hear him any longer. It's fainter and fainter And so watch this, you begin to withdraw fellowship with other believers. It's just a matter of time. And then you find yourself in conflict with yourself and with God. I can give you example after example in the Bible of where this happens. And so that downhill slide A beautiful example of it in the New Testament is the prodigal son, right? Remember, you you imagine the prodigal son kept hounding his dad. Give me my inheritance. Give me my inheritance. Give me my inheritance. The father knew in his mind, in his heart, this kid cannot handle his inheritance, right? He's too young. He's too immature. But finally, the father says, all right, have it. That's what God does, right? Okay, this is not what's best for you. But if 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 you're bent on doing this, go for it. And so what happens? He squanders everything he's got, finds himself in a pig pen, finally comes to his senses, and then comes back to his, his father. We see example after example in the Old Testament. When Israel wanted a king, God says, you don't need a king. I'm your king. No, Lord, we got to have a king. Got to have a king. There are other nations around. They got a king. We got to have a king. We got to have a king. We got to have a king. So God says, finally, all right, I'm going to tell you what. If you ask for a king and if you receive a king, here's what the king's going to do to you. And here's all the burdens he's going to place on you. And God just started listing them out. But they just said, nope, we want a king. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. God says, okay, have a king. And it was disastrous. And so what did Israel end up doing? The same thing we end up doing. They established a knockoff Yahweh. A Yahweh that was conformed to their image, to their liking, to what they could govern, what they could control. And that's exactly what happens to the church of Jesus Christ is we have a knockoff Jesus. He's no longer Lord He's just someone we can manage, someone we tack on, someone who's welcome to ride along as long as he doesn't squelch my fun, as long as he doesn't squelch my happiness, as long as he doesn't challenge me in any way. And at the end of my life, when it's all said and done, I will give him what is left over. So what is the remedy for idolatry? It is only one word, repentance. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of direction in your life. It's not just like crying before God, although you may cry. It's not telling God how sorry you are and you'll never do it again. That's probably not true. Stop making false promises. It is about changing your mind, your thought processes that leads to a change of action in life. He is saying to this church, listen, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. In Revelation chapter 1, it describes Jesus as the Savior with the sword coming out of his mouth. In other words, Jesus has got some things to say, and it's not going to be pretty. You ever read in the New Testament what makes Jesus mad, what really ticks him off? I'm going to do a series of messages on that. What ticks off Jesus? 
because there's a lot of things that we read over, we skim over. The only thing we remember is about when he went in and turned over the tables with money changers. That was not the only time Jesus got mad and made it known. So what does it mean? It means, repentance means I stop fighting and start trusting. Stop fighting against God, start trusting him with my agenda, stop fighting with God and saying, God, you need to do this, that, and the other, and make sure it happens this way or that way. I'm not, I can't not control God. I'm not called to control God. I am simply called to trust God, listen to God, and follow what he says. And so the reward of tearing down these idols, he mentions three things. One is hidden manna. And so in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, when they're in the wilderness water, remember manna was bread from heaven. Uh, via the leadership of, of Moses. Notice it was hidden manna. Manna was a gift from God to Israel, their provider. It was the Chick-fil-A of his day. You couldn't get it on Sundays. Only Monday through Saturday. And so um, the hidden manna is, 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 was, was a foreshadowing of Jesus. And here's all it simply means. I think it means is that, listen, the hidden manna speaks of all of the blessings and the benefits of having Jesus as your Savior, right? God gave them manna as a blessing, as a benefit to help them as they wandered through the wilderness. And so it's a foreshadowing of Christ who was hidden, who was veiled, who unveiled himself, exited heaven, here to earth, clothed himself in humanity so that we, through a relationship, might experience the blessings and the benefits of God, of knowing Christ. And so Matthew 5, 6 says, uh, blessed are those who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, whose righteousness, Christ, for they, they shall be satisfied. In other words, the desire of my heart, the thirst, the hunger of my heart needs to be for Jesus. And as long as I keep it for Jesus, then he is my ultimate satisfier, which makes no room for an idol taking his place. Because that's why I chase after them, because I think it's going to give me something that Christ can't. Number two, he says we get a white stone. That's a new standing before God. Between the Old and New Testament, whenever a court case was settled, uh, the judge would hand you a, pack, a little pouch that you would reach inside, and there would be a stone. It's either white stone, you're innocent, or a black stone, you are guilty. And so we have a white stone. Why do we have a white stone? Because we are enveloped in the righteousness of Christ, right? And so we are, we are in Jesus. He is in us, and we have a new standing before God. And so Jesus proved his Messiahship when he came from heaven to earth and took on human flesh and so that he could take away that black stone and in turn give us a white stone. And then a new name speaks of a new identity. You are given a new identity, a new name that no one knows. Don't ask me what that name is because I don't know, right? Here's the deal, is that when a gladiator who won, he was given a white stone with SP engraved upon it, uh, means spectates, which meant a, a valor of all, and it presented him entrance into the banquet. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you can't go outside of me and find anything that is greater than me. And that was the whole writing in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than anyone, anything. The new covenant is greater than anything you could ever latch hold of. And therefore, when you receive me into your life, I have given you a brand new 
identity, a brand new name. I, I, I'm filling your life with the blessings and the benefits of knowing Christ, as Paul spelled out in Ephesians 1. And when you finally make your grand entrance into heaven because of what Christ has done on your behalf, you will have a white stone with a name written on it, and that will grant you entrance into the marriage supper of the Lamb. Where Jesus himself, the Bible says, will be there, and he will serve. It is proof of Messiahship as he's wrapped his life around the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the greatest message we have as our lives begin to line up with the gospel of Jesus, and you begin to allow the Holy Spirit of God to flow in you and through you, drawing from the resources of heaven down here to planet earth, you, my friend, become a very powerful entity in the kingdom of God that wars against the kingdom of Satan. That's God's calling for our lives. That's what Jesus is challenging this church to do. You're not gonna win the world by becoming like the world. You're going to win the world by being distinct as the bride of Christ, as the power of the Spirit of God flows through you. In Jesus' name, let's pray. If you're here today and you find yourself, maybe just in the course of this message, just struggling with an idol, and you say, you know, I, I don't have any resources to beat this thing. Maybe it's because you've never been connected in relationship with Christ. You have the image of God in you is that thing that says, there has to be more than this. There has to be more than what I'm experiencing, just working 40 hours a week and doing the same things week in and week out. I'm trying to live for the weekends. There's got to be more to life than that. And there is. So Jesus died on the cross so that he could remake you into the, his image. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the door to life. He is the one who connects you to the one who created you. It was not cheap of him, but it is cheap for you. Because what he's offering you is the gift of salvation and it is absolutely free. It costs you nothing. It cost him everything. And if you don't have that gift, if you've never received it, if you've never asked Christ to forgive you of your sin, to be Savior and Lord of your life, there is no other way to receive Christ than by faith and trusting in his payment for your sin debt on the cross of Calvary over 2,000 years ago, yet it is still just as applicable today as it ever was. And it's simply you reaching out to him in faith and trust in his payment, saying, Lord Jesus, I, I acknowledge to you, I confess, I, I've, I've sinned, I've, I've made a mess of my life. I've done a lot of wrong things. I've got a lot of idols in my heart that I've been chasing after. But I believe that you loved me and you demonstrated that love that 
while I was in this sinful condition, you came into the world and you died for me. You exchanged your life for mine so that I might be forgiven and given a brand new slate, a brand new beginning in life. And I want to receive that today. I'm putting my faith and trust in you alone, Christ. You alone. You're the one who was raised from the dead. You're the only Savior of the world. And I'm putting my hope and trust in you this day, right now, this moment. And I'm giving you my life from this day forward. And allow you to guide it and direct it to the things that you have in store for me. I'm asking you in the name of Christ. You pray that prayer. There's no magic in the words. It's the issue of your trusting him and him alone. God says that if you've prayed that and you meant it, that God took all of your sin debt and marked it paid in full. It's like an etch-a-sketch, man. He just wiped the slate clean. He says, now I'm going to give you a brand new beginning, a brand new start. And I've indwelt you with my Holy Spirit. God himself is living inside of you to empower you to live the life that God's calling you to live. You can't do that on your own. Willpower will never make it. And he says, now I want to start recreating your life into the image of Jesus. I want to bring satisfaction and I want to bring hope. And man, there's so many benefits I want you to experience as you follow Christ, your Savior and Lord now. And if you prayed that prayer, I I ask that you just share that with somebody and say, man, that's what I did. I'll be here at the front. I'd love to celebrate with you um, for during the song, after the service. Man, make sure somebody knows that you you asked Jesus this day to be your Lord and Savior. So, Father, we thank you for this time we've had together in your word. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand as we close our time together.